From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I think sometimes Westerners are a bit intimidated by Chinese cooking and they think it's all very complicated, requires many tricky ingredients and you need a very powerful wok. But actually, Chinese home cooking is accessible. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Before we get to today's episode, if you're listening live, much of the world is feeling the effects of the coronavirus. We know this may be impacting your life in many ways, and as we face a public health pandemic, we're mindful too of the impact of this moment on the food and publishing industries. For the sake of the common good, many of the places we love, restaurants, bars, cafes, bookstores, have closed. As a show on cookbooks, we urge you to think about supporting authors, especially those whose books are being published right now and have had to cancel book events and tours. Many independent bookstores, including our friends at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, are happy to ship orders to you at the moment. Like many of you, we turn to cooking and cookbooks in moments like these, and we're continuing to publish new episodes weekly as we're able, hoping to bring you a break from the news with new and informative conversations with the cookbook authors you love. And that brings us to today's show, where we're joined by author Fuchsia Dunlop. Today, Fuchsia is considered one of the most influential authors of Chinese cookbooks. The New York Times' Julia Moskin says Fuchsia has done more to explain real Chinese cooking to non-Chinese cooks than anyone. Raised in England, Fuchsia's interest in Chinese food began while working for the BBC, and before long, she was enrolled in classes at the Sichuan Higher Institute of Cuisine, the first Western person to enroll there. Fuchsia has won four James Beard Awards, including Best International Cookbook for Her Every Grain of Rice. Her memoir, Sichuan Pepper, a sweet sour memoir of eating in China, was awarded the IACP's Jane Grigson Award. And now her latest, titled The Food of Sichuan, is here. It's an updated version of Land of Plenty, which she first published nearly 20 years ago. It contains 70 new recipes and striking new photography. In today's show, we're talking with Fuchsia about what drew her to China and the Sichuan cuisine in particular, how she approaches cookbook writing and immersing herself in the cuisine, and the role that cookbooks have played in her life. Plus, as always, we're playing a salt and spine game with Fuchsia at the end of our show, and we have recipes from the food of Sichuan for you to make at home. Also in today's show, we're headed into the kitchen with cookbook author Maria Ziska to cook from Fuchsia's latest cookbook. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Fuchsia Dunlop joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Fuchsia. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We are thrilled to have you here, and we're here to talk about your latest book, which is a, a reissue, or do you use the term reissue, or an updated version of, of a book you've done before, The Food of Szechuan. Um, but we always like to start by talking sort of about you and how you got to the career in cookbook writing and sort of come back to the book a little bit later. So let's start early on then. You were born in the UK, is that yes. right? Yes. And, and grew up there. And what role did food play in your life when you were younger? It was always tremendously important. Uh-huh. I mean, my mother claims to remember the moment when, as a baby, I first tasted food and this look of rapture spread over my face. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother's a great cook. And okay. when I was young, she taught English to foreign language students in Oxford. 
And okay. so our home and our kitchen was always filled with people from all over the world. So when I was small, we had living with us a Japanese girl at one time, a Turkish guy, sure. Spanish, Italian, all these different people. And then other groups of students, um, Lebanese, Japanese, Sudanese, they would all come for dinner. Okay. And sometimes they would take over the kitchen and cook food from their countries. And then they would leave recipes in our family repertoire. Right. How nice. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And my mother sort of really taught me to cook from a very young age. And um, I was always encouraged to muck in in the kitchen. And okay. I remember standing on a chair by the stove, stirring pots and seasoning. Sure. And I just, it always made me incredibly happy. Yeah. Do you remember what that first food was where you had that look of wonderment or no? No, but probably oh. something very basic. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. So you were very involved in the kitchen and enjoyed being working with food. And then you grow up a bit and um, are not thinking about food as a career. Is that right? You sort of go and study English? Well, English when, literature. when I was 11, I remember telling a middle school teacher in response to a question that I wanted to be a chef when I grew up. Oh, okay. And um, he laughed at me, I think, oh, because really? I was very academic. And I grew up in Oxford, uh -huh. which is an academic city. Right. But I was always very serious about cooking through my teens, and I always kept notebooks with recipes in them. Okay. So I think um, the fact that I went to a school where everyone was going to university influenced me, and I, like my friends, I went to university. But I did sure. always want to do something to do with food and also travel. And did, so you thought you would eventually come back to food in some way, even though you were studying English literature, it was always sort of in your mind as a career option for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I did think that I might go more into food policy or something, okay. but something in the food world, because that was always my great interest. Okay, sure. And I think it was also 11, you when you were 11, when you got a, a book, a cookbook that was really influential to you. Is that right? Yes, I was given by one of the foreign students, an Italian who was living with us. And when she left, she gave me the Leith's Complete Cookery Course mm -hmm. by Prue Leith and Caroline Waldegrave. Right. And, um, and this was a huge influence on me in my teenage years. And from that book, I learned how to make choux pastry, okay. pâte sucre, um, hollandaise sauce. And I learned how to um, pluck and gut pheasants that I asked my mother to buy for me. <laughs> sure. When you were like 11 or in your teens? In were... my teens sometime. Uh -huh. But I just, I always, um, just kitchens and cooking just always inspired me. And I sure. just, um, yes. And I always fantasized about doing really elaborate cooking and doing things from scratch, like plucking pheasants. Yes. Um, but this book was my, apart from, I think one children's cookbook when I was small, this was my first serious grown up cookbook. Right, right. Very meaningful. So you graduate from university. And I think, I don't know if this is the first thing you do, but eventually you have a job with the BBC. And the BBC takes you that ends up taking you to China. Is that right? Well, the BBC took me towards China, towards not China. to the country. So I was just sub-editing lots of reports about the Asia-Pacific region. Okay. And I gravitated towards China and became interested. And so in 1992, I just went on a backpacking trip around China, speaking no Chinese. Sure. 
and was fascinated. And I came back to London and signed up for Mandarin evening classes. Okay. And then a summer school in Taiwan. Okay. And then I applied for this British Council scholarship to go and live in China. Okay. And during that time, I was also, I started working as a volunteer writer on a magazine called China Now. Okay. And so I met other people who were interested in the country. And sure. It just grew from there. And so you get this scholarship to go live in China. This is not related to food? Uh, the scholarship? Officially not okay. at all. But, but on the side and informally, you're sort of put, well, putting your hands into the kitchens. and. Well, I had to choose which part of China and which university I would apply to. Okay. And in choosing Sichuan University, I was heavily influenced by this particularly a marvelous lunch I'd had there the year before. Um, I spent a few days in Chengdu on my way back from Tibet with a couple of local musicians. Okay. And they just took me around some of the city's restaurants. And it was the best Chinese food I'd ever had. And these very fresh ingredients and dazzling flavors. And it was also interesting. So I did think from a gastronomic point of view that Sichuan would be a very good um, place to live. Sure. Uh-huh. And so you're you're doing the scholarship at Sichuan University. And then do you take a couple of cooking classes as part of that? Because eventually then you, you are admitted to the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. Yes, it started off really with me just as I always had done since teenage years, having a notebook and asking people, street vendors and so on about how things were made and writing down what was in the markets. And then um, there were a lot of little restaurants around the university where my classmates and I used to eat. And um, I would ask them if I could go into the kitchen to observe and study. And often they said yes. So I started like that. And then with a German friend, went and took a few private classes at the famous Sichuan Higher Institute of Cuisine. Uh And yes, and then after I'd finished at the university, they invited me to enroll as a regular student for a a chef's training course. Sure. And you were the first foreigner to be enrolled in that program. Yes. Yes. Um, You have written before, I think this was in in your memoir, maybe, learning another cuisine is like learning a language. In the beginning, you know nothing about its most basic rules of grammar, and you just experience, as you say, this flood of words or dishes without any sort of system or structure. I'm really curious to to hear about your process of actually learning cuisine. And really, you've become an expert in so many ways in Szechuan cooking. And what was that process like to learn that cuisine at that point in time? Well, the private classes at the cooking school, it was just unpicking these classic local dishes like mapu tofu and gongbao chicken, which I'd been eating (laughs) around the university. (laughs) Right. Um, And it was an insight into the way they were put together, which was totally different from the European cooking that I'd grown up with in terms of methods methods and um the cutting the art of cutting is tremendously important in chinese food and then when i went to the chef school that was a serious grounding in all the basic techniques of sichuanese and to an extent chinese cooking and so we learned how to use the cleaver to cut ingredients into all sorts of different shapes all of them with names right (laughs) we learned the sichuan classic flavors and flavoring techniques we learned different methods of using a wok. We also did pastry making. Okay. And so that was, I mean, the whole approach is different. The way you cut your ingredients, the way you apply flavor, both in marinades before cooking and while cooking and after cooking. Sure. And, um, and particularly the most, the most challenging skill of the Chinese kitchen is what they call ho ho. 
fire and waiting, fire yeah. and timing, which is about the control of heat. And especially with fast stir frying, this is something very um, instinctive and requires a certain experience to learn. Yeah. And you mentioned cutting and knife skills, and, and you mentioned that they all have different names, right? There's actually quite an extensive vocabulary around culinary cutting in Chinese cooking. Um, how did how did you sort of handle that approach and all the different types of prep that goes into Chinese cooking? Well, I think the thing that was most striking was that there were all these different shapes, and as you say, with different names. So, jiapian right. thumbnail slices of ginger and garlic, sure. and you shipian ox tongue slices, big slices, big thin slices of radish or, or something else, and um, silken threads and ding cubes and uh-huh. rice grains. And these but, are all terms that are specific to the culinary cutting. They are. So it's not just a, a metaphorical description of how you're doing it, but it, what does that sort of say about the significance of cutting that it that actually has vocabulary specifically tied to the culinary usage? It, it shows you the level of discrimination about cutting. Mm-hmm. And it's partly aesthetic that in a Chinese dish, the way in which the ingredients are cut um, creates the beauty of form. So maybe all your ingredients are cut into little cubes or right. they're all cut into slivers. Right. So it's beautiful. And it's also technically important because particularly with fast stir frying, if your ingredients are cut haphazardly, they'll cook at different times. Right. Some will be raw when others are overcooked. Sure. So it's also technically important. Yes. But the thing that was so striking was that all this cutting was done with a single knife, a right. Chinese cleaver. Right. And so that for me, I had been given by my parents when I was 21, a set of French sabatier chef's knives. Mm-hmm. And there were all these different sizes of knife. But in a Chinese kitchen, you didn't really need more than the cleaver. Right. And maybe a heavy chopper for bones and so on. But the slicing cleaver for almost all the cutting. Sure. So you you start learning so much about Sichuan cooking, and you decide, at least early on, to really focus on Sichuan cuisine. Can you tell us, maybe for listeners who aren't super familiar with Sichuan cooking, um, how you might describe it? And I know you you've written that Sichuan um, is the size of France, like it's a it's a significant area, it's a significant global cuisine, and I think many people sort of just think of the Sichuan pepper as sort of the signature thing. But can you sort of um, help us understand the broader scope of Sichuan cuisine? Sure. So the stereotype, not just abroad, but also in China, is that Sichuanese food is very hot. It's very mala, uh-huh. numbing and hot right. from the tingly sensation of Sichuan pepper and from chilies. Sure. Um, and if you're going to Sichuan, Chinese people will usually ask, ni pa bu pa la? Are you or are you not afraid of chili heat? Okay. So that's the stereotype. But actually, um, from a Sichuanese point of view, the heart and soul of Sichuan cooking is in the mixing of flavors. Uh-huh. And what's really distinctive about Sichuanese cuisine is the extraordinary diversity of tastes and the layering of flavors in what they call fuhuwei, complex flavors. Okay. So you get sort of sweet, sour, salty, nutty, hot sure. in different proportions in a single dish. And Sichuanese chefs are masters of the art of flavor. When I was at cooking school, we learned 23 classic canonical flavor combinations, including uh-huh. not only mala, which is very hot, but yuxiang wei, fish fragrant flavor, which is a much gentler heat from pickled chili okay. with um, ginger, garlic, scallion, a bit of sweet and sour. So that's a and very seductive. fish fragrant, you said? Yes. Okay. No fish in it. It's okay. the seasonings of traditional Sichuanese fish cooking. Okay. But there are also lots of flavors that are not hot at all. 
And, um, actually in Sichuan, they say, which means each dish has its own style and a hundred dishes have a hundred different flavors. And this is what's so marvelous about Sichuanese cooking that even, um, even at quite humble meals, um, in not expensive restaurants, if you're dining with a group, you'll have a lot of different dishes and a lot of different flavors. So some will be hot, some will be sweet, some will be very gentle and under seasoned. And so a good Sichuanese meal is like a kind of journey with highs and lows and it's very stimulating and exciting. Yeah, I love that. Um, there's been a lot of misconceptions around Chinese food, particularly from Western culture and particularly from the United States and sort of um, some stereotypes about Americanized Chinese dishes, right? Um, are you seeing that changing in any way? I think we've had books like yours, cookbooks like yours, as well as other sort of deep dives into regional cuisines of China in particular? Are you seeing a shift from your perspective of how people understand Chinese food and the complexity and the diversity? Totally. Uh-huh. So I think people in the West uh, often thought they knew Chinese food, that it was a familiar cuisine. And what Chinese food was for most people was an often adapted westernized form of Cantonese cooking. Uh-huh. And that was Chinese food. And I think the last couple of decades have seen the eruption of all these regional cuisines. So you've got more recent immigrants from China opening restaurants specializing in Sichuan, Hunan, Yunnan, right. uh, all these different regional cuisines. So I think it's totally opened up um, the idea of China and the sense that it's this huge and diverse country and there is not one Chinese cuisine. Right. But I do think there are other stereotypes that still haven't been conquered and should be. Okay. Most particularly, I think there's still a perception that's very pervasive that Chinese food is unhealthy. Uh Everyone loves it. It's very tasty, but it's a bit junky. It's a bit heavy. There's lots of deep fried food. So it might be wonderful to eat, but it's not a good thing to have it all the time. And I think this is a complete nonsense because the way Chinese people traditionally and still typically eat at home is a model for all of us. And it's so balanced and people eat so many vegetables and they eat much less meat. And I think that people in China, part of their culture, and part of their everyday conversation is about which foods are good for what and how to eat for health. And Chinese people, when they feel a bit sick or off color, they start changing their diet before they start thinking about medication. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just think the Chinese understand about the link between good food and good health better than anyone else. Yeah. And so it's just crazy when people think that it's an unhealthy cuisine. Yeah. There, the Americanized Western version certainly can be. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that fuels the stereotype, right? Because you have, you know, chain restaurants in the United States that are serving unhealthy food under the guise of Chinese cooking. So I think that that fuels that to some degree. But I think also it's partly self-inflicted because I think that um, people don't understand how to order in a Chinese restaurant. Okay. And I think that um, the typical Western thing is to just order what you think will be the most delicious and tasty dishes. And they'll be delicious and tasty. But Chinese people ordering will typically also order very plain and understated dishes, Uh simple stir-fried greens, a light soup. Sure. And these are really part of the whole meal. Yeah. 
And so it's quite ironic, really, that Westerners often order all the tastiest and least healthy stuff, neglecting the simple dishes and then say, oh, Chinese food is a bit unhealthy. Right. So you are living in Sichuan. You're, you're taking, you're enrolled in the culinary program. You're taking these classes. When do you sort of decide that you're going to move in a cookbook writing direction? Well, I think originally it it was just out of interest. Uh And when I was asked to enroll in the cooking school, it was just, this is going to be fun. Sure. I'd always wanted to go to cook school and then I was invited to do it in China. Right. And so it wasn't really a career move. It was really just, well, I'm free at the moment and I'm just going to follow my heart yeah. for once and okay. not think about the consequences. Sure. And, but I think over time, it just seemed to me that this cuisine was so extraordinary and it seemed extraordinary when I went home that no one really knew much about it. And I cooked Sichuanese food for friends and family and they were, wow, this is delicious. This is new. This is exciting. Right. And so that's how the serious idea of writing a cookbook came about. From that interest that you were getting from your, your peers or your, your family. Yes. And also just the, the de- the desire to sort of spread the word about this glorious food. Sure. And then you work on your first book, and I understand it was rejected a number of times. The proposal was rejected a number of times by publishers, and we we just were talking about the the complexity and regionality of of Chinese cuisine. And I I think some or all of the publishers rejected your pitch because it was too regional. Is that right? Yeah. So in the late nineties, I sent a proposal to six publishers in London. Okay. And they all wrote back and said that British readers would not be interested in something so narrow as a Chinese regional cook. Okay. And it was like, Sichuan is the size of a European country and it's a serious cuisine. Um, But then a year later, I decided to give it another go. And I took a lot of trouble writing a really good proposal. Okay. And I sent it to two publishers, both of whom wanted it. Okay. And I was very lucky with Michael Joseph, which is the division of Penguin, because they had taken on a consultant chef editor to help them find the next thing in cookbooks. And so I think he persuaded them to take a punt on this rather unusual Chinese cookbook. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and it obviously did well and you've been writing cookbooks ever since. Um, but what was that process like early on to feel that sort of rejection or hesitation around maybe what they considered a risk to publish a book of, of this nature? I mean, I don't think it deterred me at all. Okay. And I just, with the second proposal, I was just aware that I had a potential career in conventional journalism opening up. And before I got sucked into it, I wanted to have another go at doing this project that I really wanted to do. Sure. And so that's, that was that book proposal. Sure. And so then you published Land of Plenty and, and Land of Plenty was your second book. Do I have that right? No. So Sichuan Cookery was my first book, uh-huh. which came out in Britain in 2001. Uh-huh. And Land of Plenty is simply the American edition of that book, but it was okay. two years later sure. in 2003. Okay. So they're both my first book. Both your you first books. Yeah. And different with different audiences. Yes. So, so Land of Plenty is out in 2003. And then, um, the food of Sichuan is an updated version of Land of Plenty. And so you went back and so, or, or sort of traveled to some extent and re-updated this book. There's new recipes in here. You revisited some old recipes. What was that process like of revisiting your first book so many years later? Were there things that surprised you or that you found interesting as you were, you were coming back 
what is it, it's 18 years later, something like that? Well, initially I was a bit scared uh-huh. because having agreed to do it and wanting to do it, I then thought, oh, what if I mess it up? You know, it was quite a nice book. People liked it. Right. And then I just thought, come on, Future, you wrote it and uh, <laughs> you have more experience now. Sure. And then once I dared to start messing with it, it was great because it wasn't just that I just said, okay, I'm going to update it and now I'm going to travel around. I had been continued traveling around and taking notes and researching for the next 18 years. Right. So I had all this material in notebooks. And um, so I also did some specific trips, particularly to southern Sichuan, which okay. is beautiful and very exciting in culinary terms. But I had a lot of the material already. And so I have added 70 new recipes. Okay. And some of them reflect that regional diversity. So recipes from uh, other places like in southern Sichuan, like Lushan and Zigong. Okay. And Lijuang and Chongqing. Okay. So the, not just Chengdu focused. Right. Um, and the other thing I did was I retested all the recipes in the original book. And I thought, let's really go for this and just see even my favorite recipes. Can I improve on them? Yeah. And I think I have. So even the recipes that I think are the best in the first book, like fish fragrant eggplant. Okay. I just made many times and tweaked a few things. And I think that the new versions are improved. Okay. Yeah. And that's one of your favorites. <laughs> oh, that's one of my favorite dishes yeah. in the world. Okay. What, what in goes into book. it? So it's an example of the fish fragrant flavor I mentioned earlier. Right. So it has a base of pickle chilies that are not too hot, but are fruity and fragrant and sure. a little bit spicy ginger, garlic, scallion, and a bit of sweet and sour. And it's really a simple dish. So you just um, take the eggplants. I salt them, which is not a traditional Chinese method, but borrowed from the Mediterranean. Right. And that's simply because they then absorb less oil. So the final dish is less oily. Sure. So then I deep fry them until they're a little golden and really buttery and tender and then take them out of the wok and then make the sauce. So you sizzle the aromatics, the pickled chili paste, the ginger garlic, um, and you sizzle them till they smell absolutely wonderful. And then you add a little liquid, a little sugar, a little spot of soy sauce, and then you put the eggplants back in uh-huh. and let them bathe in this opulent sauce and suck up all the flavors. Sure. And then you thicken the sauce a little, and then you finally add a dash of Chinese brown vinegar okay. and a handful of scallion greens. Uh-huh. And all these different flavor elements kind of fuse together in this gorgeous, rich whole. And it's just such a good example of the brilliance of Sichuanese cooking in that the ingredients are nothing special, quite cheap, they're accessible to everyone. Right. Sichuan is known in Chinese, Sichuanese as a sort of folk cooking, not a grand banquet tradition as much as a sort of style of folk cooking. And yes, and it's not difficult to make, but it has this genius balance of flavors. Yeah. And it's just heavenly delicious. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Fuchsia Dunlop, author of The Food of Sichuan. Don't go anywhere. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Alison Roman to today's guest, Fuchsia Dunlop, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. 
Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our efforts to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash saltandspine. Recently, I joined Salt and Spine friend Maria Ziska to cook from Fuchsia Dunlop's The Food of Sichuan. Maria has worked on more than a dozen high-profile cookbooks, and she published her first solo cookbook, The Newlywed Table, last year. She also helped Americanize Fuchsia's The Food of Sichuan. I stopped by Maria's place in Berkeley on a weeknight, armed with a basket of groceries, plump globe eggplants, fresh ginger and garlic, and jars of Sichuan chili bean paste and soy sauce. Tonight, Maria and I were tackling what Fuchsia called in her book, quote, one of my all-time favorite dishes of any cuisine. It's the fish-fragrant eggplants. A local classic in Sichuan cooking, Fuchsia says this dish, perhaps more than any other, sums up the, quote, luxurious pleasures of Sichuan food, the warm colors and tastes, the subtlety of complex flavors. It has bits of eggplant that are lightly fried before they get tossed in a silky, spicy, bright red sauce that's punched up with fermented chilies, garlic, ginger, and scallions. Uh, We're going to fry the eggplant... And it's not breaded or anything. It's Mm -hmm. just kind of a first round cook. And then we're going to make a really fragrant, flavorful sauce and put the eggplant. That's that's where the ginger and and ginger and um, garlic goes. And then we'll add the eggplant to that. We got right to work cutting the eggplants into small batons. So we basically have like giant matchsticks. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And right. they're, they're going to shrink up probably, right? Probably That's a little probably bit. why we're cutting them relatively large. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They have a nice shape. So we have a, a big pile of eggplants. <laughs> <laughs> and now I think we salt it. Okay. Yes. And, and let it sit for a bit. Mm-hmm. And why do we salt it? The salting, other than seasoning the mm-hmm. vegetable and flavoring it, draws out some of the moisture. Right. And it will help it when it cooks to have a really nice texture. Uh huh. We set the salted eggplant to the side and turn to what makes this dish a fish-fragrant one. As Fuchsia notes, there are four ingredients, all common in traditional fish dishes, that make a recipe fish-fragrant. So ginger is one of the elements that makes this fish-fragrant. Right. right. Okay. Yes. And the... The name fish fragrant, I think, can be a little confusing at first because it has the word fish in it. So you <laughs> you think there must be fish in the dish, but sure. <laughs> when in fact there's not. Right. Um, it describes the seasonings that are often used in fish dishes. So ginger, you mentioned, and also garlic uh-huh. and scallions. Okay. As well as chili. Sure. Always chili. Always chili. Yes. <laughs> Do you do this peel ginger with a I do. spoon? I do. a spoon, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our ginger peeled, we smash some garlic cloves and use a microplane to finely grate both. Now, as I said, we're cooking this on a weeknight because, believe it or not, our prep is basically done. We do a bit more mise en place, measuring out some of the sauce components, and take a minute to talk about this recipe and Fuchsia's cookbooks in general while our frying oil heats up. Um, I'm no expert like Fuchsia is, but one thing that I've noticed a pattern is that there's always attention to how the dish looks. So in this case, the way the eggplants are cut and then on top of that, how it tastes. So balancing those 
those fish fragrant flavors, the sweet, the salty, um, the spicy, and put together, they sort of make this really elevated, beautiful, delicious dish. With that, our cooking oil is at temp and we're ready to start frying. We nestle the eggplant into a single layer in the oil, working in batches to crisp them all. When I first got the email about the, the project from the U.S. editor, um, I was I kind of couldn't believe it. You know, it's like pinching myself because this book was the, the first edition was, I think, one of the best cookbooks still in print and yeah. in existence, and one of my favorites for sure. And why is that? It you really can learn so much from it, and. I, I love Fuchsia's personal story of, you know, going, traveling there, being a student and, and then enrolling at the cooking school. But there is so much information in this book. And you, just by cooking through the recipes, you learn all of these new things. And I don't, I don't think that's true with every cookbook. Yeah. There are little tips and tricks and, and just a whole world of flavors that you might never have even tasted before, like Sichuan peppercorn, for example. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was thrilled that they were going to, to reissue it and that she was going to have new recipes and yeah. beautiful new photos. She's amazing. I think the way she writes is, is beautiful and she really captures, it makes you feel, reading this book, you feel like you're, you're traveling in Sichuan and, and you're eating at the restaurants she eats at and you meet the same people and her friends become your friends and not every writer can do that. I think she has a really special gift for it. Yeah. The eggplant fried, our sauce comes together in just minutes. Garlic, ginger, chili bean paste, sugar, soy sauce, water, vinegar, all simmer together, thickened by a potato starch and finished with scallions. We tip the lightly fried eggplant back into our welcoming bubbly sauce and stir before we dive in. Well, it's amazing. <laughs> we did it. We did it. <laughs> I hope Fuchsia would be proud. I think she would. I think this has become my favorite recipe in the book, too. I know, and we haven't even tasted it. <laughs> we haven't even tasted it. That's what we and need to do. it's up there for, for me, too. <laughs> Let me get you a fork. Mmm. <laughs> There's mm. so much going on. There's mm -hmm. sweet... There's chili, spice, tartness from the vinegar, some good saltiness from the soy. Yeah. And the eggplant has such a luxurious texture. It's like... It does. Luxurious is right. It yeah. just sort of melts in your mouth. It melts. Yeah. Wow, that's delicious. Yum. So good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great weeknight meal. Fabulous recipe. That's cookbook author Maria Ziska. You can find the recipe for Fuchsia Dunlop's fish fragrant eggplant on our website, saltandspine.com. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the latest issue, read about how climate change is already impacting seafood in the Bay Area. Plus, take a look at upcoming cookbooks by local authors and some of the best sustainable seafood cookbooks. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at ediblesanfrancisco.com. And now, back to our conversation with Fuchsia Dunlop, author of The Food of Sichuan. 
So tell us a little bit about your process of putting these recipes together then, because you're, you're often going in and observing how the recipes are made and then translating them to a, a recipe you can recreate from the book. Yeah, so typically, I, I mean, I have a big library of Chinese cookbooks, but they're not the primary resource when I'm devising recipes. Okay. So I have um, dozens, well, more than a 100 notebooks filled with recipes and notes from China. Sure. So if I have a particular recipe, I will look at all the notes. If I'm organized, I'll have a file in my computer for that dish. And I just have lots of different observations and notes from different kitchens and from what different people have told me. Okay. And so then I have a look at my notes and I also look at increasingly my digital photographs of the dish I'm trying to recreate. Sure. Um, sometimes look at cookbooks as well for reference. And then I come up with a strategy. So I write down approximately what I'm going to do. And then I assemble my ingredients and then I just measure everything as I go along and right. take notes, oil splattered, soy sauce splattered <laughs> notes. <Right. laughs> and then that's like my first sketch and I see how it turns out. And with some dishes, now I have quite a lot of experiences. Sometimes I get it right first time with simple dishes, but with some dishes with more complex flavors or many different seasonings, then it can take many attempts. And I think, well, next time I'll use a bit more sugar or a bit less soy sauce, or I'll alter the proportion of the ingredients. Right. But that's how I work it. And I just um, keep doing it until I've got what I want, which seems to me to express the dish that I'm trying to recreate. Yeah. And and you're not necessarily setting out sometimes to create a dish and doing it in a short period of time. You're you're sort of acquiring notes as you're traveling and as you're observing and and those all sort of live in these these files and then those can that can take quite a while, that research process. Yes, because there's a difference between some recipes are based on particular kitchens and particular cooks or chefs, mm-hmm. the way they do it. Right. So I'm trying to recreate something I tasted in this place at that time. Okay. But other dishes like mapu tofu or right. gongbao chicken, which are classics that are made all over the place, with those I've tasted so many different versions right. and I've been thinking about them for 20 years. <laughs> right. And so with that, it's a question of just thinking about how I can make it better. Yeah. And of all these different tips that I've picked up from chefs and cooks and friends and so on in China, um, what am I going to apply to make this recipe the best that I can? Yeah. Do you ever feel satisfied or are you always wanting to improve on a dish or do you ever feel like I've got it? It's, it's done. It's perfect. Sometimes I do. Sometimes when yeah. I really feel I've nailed it, uh-huh. then it's such a great feeling. Sure. But often because it's quite laborious and I think that's what I was trying to do. Yes. And you've achieved it. Yes. Yeah. But then other things, it's not, um, recipes are not absolute things. They evolve. Our tastes evolve. The way people cook them evolve in China. Right. So maybe if I look back in five years, I'll have another view. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you also, in the meantime, in between updating the book and writing the first version of it, have written a number of other books, including a memoir, Shark's Fin and Szechuan Pepper, and your, two, I think, 2014 book, Every Grain of Rice, which is focused on Chinese home cooking. What are some of the secrets of Chinese home cooking? You've mentioned a few of the elements, but what are some of the things that people can think about when they want to bring Chinese cooking and Szechuan cooking into their home? Well, the first thing is that 
Sichuanese home cooking is what Chinese people do at home all the all the time. Right. So I think sometimes Westerners are a bit intimidated by Chinese cooking and they think it's all very complicated, requires many tricky ingredients, mm-hmm. and you need a very powerful wok. But actually, Chinese home cooking is accessible, and you basically have to go to a good Chinese shop and stock up on I don't know eight or so key ingredient seasonings. Sure. And once you've got them, then you're set up and there are many dishes that are a doddle to make. They're like Chinese versions of salads or simple stir fries. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that it's really healthy and economical because Chinese cooking typically uses less meat than, say, American cooks right. would use. So you might take one piece of meat that one American would eat for dinner, but you cut it into slivers and you stir fry it with a vegetable. Yeah. And with another vegetable dish or two, it, it feeds a family of four. Right. So the food is healthy. And, and that's one of the great joys for me of Chinese home cooking is this, these excellent techniques for cooking vegetables. So with Chinese food, you don't eat your greens out of duty because you think they're good for you. <laughs> right. You eat them because they're insanely delicious. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, and it's quite nice because like on the Amazon page and through social media, I've had lots of comments from people using that book. Firstly, who'd never cooked Chinese before and were surprised by how easy it was and how right. there are many recipes that you can just knock up in 10 or 20 minutes. But also that um, they found that the family was eating more healthily and saving money. Sure, yeah. <laughs> because of the style of food. Yeah, that's awesome. So we're a show on cookbooks. I always like to talk to authors about some of the influences you've had. We talked about um, some of the early cookbooks you had, but are there other works or other authors who have been particularly influential to you over your career, either as a, a cook or as a author? Well... Claudia Roden's cookbooks. Mm -hmm, So my mother has always had a great library of cookbooks and I grew up eating Claudia Roden's Middle Eastern food. And then as a teenager making hummus and other dishes from her recipes. Yes. And I love the way that she puts uh, dishes, puts recipes in their historical and cultural context. Right. And she's a historian and ethnographer as well as a cook. Yes. So she's one of the great masters of the art. I love the recipes of Marcella Hazan. Mm-hmm. They all work. Yeah. They're very achievable. So that's my go-to for Italian cooking. Of course. I also really admire the recipes and the writing of Fergus Henderson of St. John. And he has this very idiosyncratic and distinctive style. It's very spare, almost Spartan. Like he's a man not of many words, but of great humor and precision. Yes. And he's got a wonderful voice. Yeah. As a writer. And then in terms of actual food writing, like many people, I think MFK Fisher mm-hmm. is the best. Of course. And some of her essays are just models of sort of, you know, very, um, very, how do you say? Such accomplished writing, uh-huh. but also sensibility, emotion. It's yeah. all in there. Right. And she's a sort of magician of food writing. Yeah. I think. You would be maybe interested to know that when I was in college, I took a class on food writing and it was right around the time that your memoir came out. And we actually read both MFK Fisher's book and your memoir in the same syllabus in the same course. Hey, what an honor. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) How would you finish this sentence? To me, cookbooks are... Treasure houses. Hmm. Can you say more? 
Treasure houses. I love that word. Well, they're just full of possibility and joy and knowledge, and they open up something that you can bring alive in your kitchen and you can create delicious food for the people you care about. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're life-changing in that way. Yeah. Good cookbooks. Yeah. Well, I love that. And wonderful transition to our game. We always end with a little game. Um, so I thought since we're here to celebrate your, your reissue and, and of the land of plenty and the food of Szechuan, I thought we would play a Szechuan cooking game. So you've got some ingredient cards next to you. Um, they're sort of categorized as you can see by proteins, flavors, vegetables, and then the blue deck is secret ingredients. So those are, um, things that sort of live outside of those, those realms. Um, so in the food of Szechuan, you include a section, two sections on, and you alluded to this a little bit, the 23 flavors of Szechuan cooking, which you learned in cooking school and also the 53 or sorry, 56, um, different cooking methods of Szechuan. So I'm wondering if you can take your expertise of those flavors and those um, methods of cooking and apply them to the ingredients that we're going to pull here. So we'll do a couple rounds maybe, and you can draw a mixture of the cards from the different piles. We'll see what you have to work with and then how you might turn that into a Szechuan dish if you're able. How does that sound? All right. Okay. I wait your instructions. Okay. So you'll draw from e- one from each deck um, for our first round and tell us what you have uh, and see if we're able to turn that into a Szechuan dish. So, um, fish sauce, duck, cinnamon, and cauliflower. Okay. So, well, I wouldn't put them all together. Am sure. I allowed to think in terms yeah, of that, two dishes? And yeah, that's one about thing how, about how they might complement each other as different dishes, of course. That's one thing about Chinese cooking that you often, if you look in your fridge or your larder and you see what ingredients you have with a Chinese eye, you will tend to make several small individual dishes. Okay. Each of yeah. them contrasting shapes and flavors sure. rather than bung them all in one stew. Sure. So, I love that. So let's apply that to this, this method then too. Yeah. So I think the duck and cinnamon could be rather lovely together. So I might do a sort of duck stew. So cut the duck into chunks on the bone and then cook it with, um, I'd need some other spices too. I presume I'm allowed that. Yes. You can rely on your larder (laughs) as you please. Yes. Ginger and spring onion, Uh maybe a bit of Shaoxing wine and, um, maybe a bit of soy sauce or caramel for color and some spices, including cinnamon or cassia bark, um, star anise, so on. And that could be a lovely stew to have with white rice. Uh huh. And then the other two, cauliflower and fish sauce. So in the regions of China I'm familiar with, they don't really use fish sauce, but it's a nice umami seasoning. Yes. Like um, they they do use soy sauce and dried shrimps and right. cured pork, bacon, this sort of thing. Sure. So I would um, make a sort of wok cooked dish of cauliflower with a bit of chili and possibly a bit of sliced pork with a bit of fat on it. Okay and um some fish sauce and then add a little liquid and sort of half fry half stew it and then okay. finish it off with some chopped chinese green garlic i think that would be delicious and mm. cauliflower of course is a really good vehicle for flavor and yeah. with the umami fish sauce that could be delicious yeah that sounds delicious okay let's do one more round that was excellent all right what do we have to work with Ooh, now these are quite interesting <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so steak and chives. Okay. And I'm going to assume these are Chinese garlic chives for my purposes. Let's do that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And kumquat 
and sweet potatoes. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. So again, I wouldn't do them all together. Right. And I wouldn't necessarily even serve them all together. Okay. But I might take the steak and cut it into fine slivers and add a little marinade and a little starch and stir fry it with chives. Okay. Very simple home style supper dish. Yes. More commonly made actually with pork, but I think it would okay. be fine with steak too. If sure. It's nice and lean. And then with the kumquats, I'm thinking of this very lovely sort of Shanghainese Jiangnan starter. Okay. When you, um, it's a sort of, you take out the seeds and the pith of the kumquats and you cook them in a syrup. Okay. And then you serve them cold as an appetizer. Oh, interesting. It okay. would also work very nicely as part of a dessert Western style, but sure. I've had them there as a cold appetizer. Sure. And the sweet potatoes, I would just roast them in the oven until they ooze a little bit of syrup around the sides. Mm-hmm. And they're very delicious like that. With anything on them? Or just no, a little oil? No, and that's oil? like a classic... Um, so, uh, a classic Chinese street snack. So you would get people with mobile ovens okay. wandering the old lanes. And on a winter day, you'd just get a sweet potato roasted in its skin. Uh-huh. It would warm your hands up and right. then you would just eat it fresh. And they're so delicious on their own. You don't need anything else. Wow, that's delicious. Well, that was awesome. Well, thank you so much, Fuchsia, for joining us. This was so much fun. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Fuchsia Dunlop's The Food of Sichuan, The Fish Fragrant Eggplants, and The Mapo Tofu. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine or leave us a rating on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and producer Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Maria Ziska, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 